Welcome in to the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I'm Oregon Ducks reporter Ryan Clark, joined by beat writer James Crepia. It is a new year for the Ducks Confidential Podcast. New co-hosts. I'm jumping on the beat with James this year to cover all things Ducks. I'm excited about this and opportunity and to, to host another podcast on our network here. Now we've got this and Soccer Made in Portland rolling. Uh, so, so James, good to be here. And uh, obviously today is signing day um, for the Oregon Ducks and, and bringing in a handful of recruits. Not a terribly busy signing day as compared with, with earlier ones, but um, you know, just your initial thoughts your 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 first blush look at this you know 2024 class uh including obviously there are some transfers coming into the to the oregon football program but you know maybe starting with the high school recruits yeah so i, I kind of personally um though i know that we're, we're increasingly starting to try to lump the transfers in with uh, that year's uh, high school recruits but i personally still try to delineate uh, because I'm not sure anybody's really come up with a particularly good metric or algorithm or way to uh, assign some of the the tried and true methods that we've seen in the high school way uh, in terms of talent evaluation scores and those sorts of things. I'm not sure anybody's really come up with a particularly good way to do that in the, in the transfer side of things. Um, if a transfer comes in off a redshirt year or after a freshman year where they played, how do you evaluate that against a guy uh, – like a Dylan Gabriel, who's a proven commodity, but has one year, um, right. you know, do you ding the one year? If that one year player is a Heisman contender or an all American, how do you equate that properly? And I raise all those questions because somebody who, for instance, a year ago, uh, for Oregon's purposes was not terribly highly rated, uh, in the transfer portal market, uh, but obviously had a rather tremendous season, uh, was Tez Johnson. So you go, so, how do you actually account for uh, and try to put a, a numeric value to that as one would uh, when they were high school players? And I don't pretend to have the answer, but because nobody else does, <laughs> that's why I try to draw out the delineation there still. Um, and I know, like I say, that people still try to clump them all together because, well, whether it's 247 or somebody else or any number of other outlets try to, uh, like I say, put numbers to these things. But bottom line, to me, the, the class is the the high school and, and junior college class as it has been traditionally. And it's hard to really nitpick and come up with an area where Oregon didn't do particularly well, uh, particularly at the line of scrimmage particularly in the secondary, I think this class, and, and a receiver for that matter. Uh, I think at the skill spots and on the defensive front seven, uh, that's really what the hallmark of this class is. And that's where the lion's share of the talent uh, is in this class. Um, we can quibble probably a little bit about quarterback, but this became a cycle where the transfer quarterbacks was really uh, what it was about. And obviously they're well situated uh, in, in 2025 and beyond in the, in the quarterback position as well. Yeah, especially when you're talking about a guy like Dante Moore, who, you know, coming coming out of high school, he was a, obviously somebody that Oregon very much wanted to be in Eugene and and is only a year into his collegiate experience. So, yeah, you're talking about building out the, the quarterback position into the future. That seems to be the pathway. Yeah. And, and look, ultimately, Oregon flipped a couple of receivers late and adds a Gatlin Bear uh, on uh, officially on signing day, but in the days ahead of, of, of the February signing period. And we know that he's got, uh, going on an LDS mission, so he's not enrolling for a couple of years. So, yes, he's a member of this class because that's the way it is, but he's really like a 2026 uh, recruit. But be that as it may, uh, 
did Oregon flip an ad to its class and add talent over the course of the recruiting cycle? Yes. So did they lose commitments from or you know have players who were committed to the class who decommitted and went elsewhere? Yes, they did. If you're going to call it what it is, and this is, you know, again, for folks who aren't necessarily familiar or maybe this is the first time you're here in the podcast. Yes, we cover Oregon and Ryan's just joined the beat and, and we'll certainly get into more of his background for folks who haven't heard him in his soccer coverage before. But, you know, I. I'm not from here. I'm not a fan here. I've got a job to do. Uh, if you're going to call it what it is, and it's not merely because uh, you know we cover Oregon, so you know this is not rose-colored glasses. They were talented players, but the decommits that they had go elsewhere went to, comparatively speaking, while there may be Power Five programs, uh, in the case of Michael Van Buren, who was the quarterback committed to the class, and he signed at Mississippi State. So yes, he went to the SEC and whatnot, but. You know, if you're going to be objective and say which program is better, or I mean, Oregon is the better program than Mississippi State. Let's not kid ourselves. And I think because they were pursuing transfer quarterbacks, it then becomes a question for anybody in that position: Do you want to be one of two quarterbacks in a class, and then uh, at a quarterback position where only one guy can play, where they're bringing in guys to play for 24 and 25 and beyond with Dante Moore and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And at the receiver spot, Jordan Anderson goes to, up the road to Oregon State, and clearly that's a, a very nice addition for Oregon State's purposes. But when Oregon has the opportunity to add Jeremiah McClellan and Ryan Pelham on the early signing period, and then Gatlin Bear later, the receiving room is only going to be so big. At tight end, they had a Jackson Ford. He ends up signing with Tulsa in the early signing period. They also added Roger Silpaga later on. So if you're going to call it what it is in terms of the guys that they quote-unquote lost or had decommit from this cycle... Some of that is processing, and some of that is just you have the opportunity to add talent uh, and greater talent, or what you, the coach views as greater talent. Whether or not you know that proves to be, we'll see in time, uh, right? I mean, that's if, if you're a Ducks fan, you're hoping that they added the absolute best they could add at every position, and when those things happen, that you know the guy that you got is better than the guy who you lost. But them's the breaks. Bottom line, like I say, they added. A, uh, obviously, at lots of positions uh, where the questions, the the areas and, and positions where I would say I'd have uh, a questions or um, uh, longer term development in the class, in the high school portion of the class. Uh, obviously, Luke Moog is a really talented quarterback, but hasn't played the position for a long time, uh, is a really dynamic athlete, but is certainly in more in a developmental capacity at the moment coming in at this time. And he's already on campus uh, where you have a proven commodity in addition in Dylan Gabriel from a transfer standpoint and an Adante Moore, uh, who's also in a developmental standpoint after one year, but transferred. So uh, to say nothing of, you know, quarterback, you've already got um, on the roster already. So that's a position where you say, well, did you land the top five, five star, what, well, no, you didn't, but you, you had it elsewhere at that position. Uh, at running back, at, at Dewan Riggs, lower ranked in recruiting rankings. But if running backs coach Carlos Lachlan feels he's the fit and mold of what he is searching for, combined with he is the Gatorade player of the year in his area uh, and a productive guy, all right, is he as well regarded as, again, some highly touted blue chipper? Uh, no, he's not. So at those two positions, you would say comparatively, compared to even positions that Oregon had higher rated talent for, for fans who pay attention to those things. And again, the coaching staff, they'll tell you they don't. They do. But is it the only thing? Obviously not. They are evaluating far more than just what, what a star rating is. 
But at receiver, I don't care what evaluation you look at, uh, what tool, what ranking, whatever, uh, this is probably the most talented receiving class in program history by sheer talent. Because for one, if you're going to make that assessment and comparison, chances are you'd say it's in the last 25 years. And as Troy Franklin's about to do, in all likelihood this spring, this program hasn't had a receiver drafted in the first two rounds since 1998. And that probably will change in April. But point is, is where where else, where would you draw the line? Where would you draw the comparison to say, well, this is the best class since at the receiver position? Maybe only a couple of years ago with Troy Franklin and Dante Thornton and Isaiah Brevard. Okay, Thornton ended up going to Tennessee. We'll see what the rest of his career looks like. And Brevard went to a junior college, and we'll see what the rest of his career looks like. But point is, is this is on paper, and by on film and every other you know number and metric, probably the most talented receiving core uh, in a signing class in program history. And that's to say nothing of adding Evan Stewart uh, in the transfer portal, who's a former you know number one, number two player overall uh, in the class a couple of years ago. So at the receiver spot. Um, it's a little bit of an embarrassment of riches, to be quite honest, uh, when you can add uh, Dylan Gresham, Jeremiah McClellan, Ryan Pelham, uh, Gatlin Bayer, who, again, I realize is more of you could pretty much count as a 2026 player, but be that as it may. And a Jack Wrestler, along with Evan Stewart in the transfer portal, that is a unbelievable haul of talent at the receiver it, it position. It is. It is. And there's, there's been, you know, you touched on it, uh, it on one of your earlier points, you know, the idea of this, you know, constant churn in college football where guys are coming in, guys are going out and it, and it's, I mean, it's still going to happen. There's still going to be guys, you know, shed from, from the program as, as the season gets closer. But, um, you know, that, that this is just, you know, how, how it works now. Like you, you think about a guy like Jabbar Muhammad coming in, um, you know, if he would have declared for the NFL draft and gone out this year, it would have been Washington produced another, you know, elite corner or elite defensive player or whatever. Uh, and, and that's the narrative and discussion. But now, I mean, he's when he goes out for the draft next year, he's going to be coming out of Oregon. And so that, that type of discussion is going to surround those type of players. But at the same time, like the the overall picture of of the re- recruiting landscape in general is is just in in so much flex with the way that the transfer transfer portal is structured that yeah i mean you you can't really um you know overreact necessarily or i guess you can overreact to to people leaving uh maybe much quicker than you can can overreact to people arriving because the landing's approach really seems to be you know bring in as many and this is the approach of a lot of great college football programs in the country at this point uh in the sport uh, bring in as many highly talented individuals as you can even at excess and then let the chips fall where they may you're gonna probably lose the back end guys to the portal anyway why not have those back end guys be more likely to compete for for actual time you have to that that, that you absolutely have to if you're going to play for especially now in the expanded playoff era that we're heading into we're defining success. We're going to all redefine and move the proverbial goalposts on how we define success for a program for a season. Because before, for the last 10 years, it's been about getting in the playoff and obviously, yes, winning a championship. But if you weren't part of the four teams, then 
you know, you got dismissed. And by the end of it, certainly, as we saw with the volume of opt-outs and, and what even some of the other New Year's Six games became over the last couple of years, including this year, um, we could see that it no longer mattered to the players. So it certainly didn't matter to any fans uh, by the end of it. We're going to change that a lot. If the, you know, everybody's done the, the thought exercise and gone back and applied, well, if the playoff existed for the last 10, 12, 15 years, which programs would be in there more often? And which programs uh, who haven't necessarily been in the 14 playoff would have been in the 12-team field and what the, what would they have done? And not only in Oregon or Washington, or but obviously Wisconsin and Penn State, uh, as two in particular, to point it out. Well, how we will view programs going forward is going to change because of that. How we view the number of losses in the regular season is going to change because the Big Ten and the SEC are going to have... You're going to have teams who make it into the 12-team field as the 10 or 11 seed who are going to have three or maybe even four losses. But because one of their wins was against the number one or the number two, the SEC or Big Ten champion, uh, that's going to get them in the field. And then they're going to win a game in the playoff, and you're going to go, holy cow, four-loss team. is you know They're nine and four, and they're playing in a playoff quarterfinal. And what if they win that you know kind of thing? We're going to be redefining all those things. But with it comes also the heightened expectation that if you're not just going to get in it, and we're going to say whether or not your season was a success. But if you're going to truly contend for winning a league and getting the auto bid and the first round by in the expanded playoff, but also have the or and whether or not you do or not, you know, have the opportunity to host a, a playoff game on your campus in the first round. But to do damage once you're there and to truly sit at the big table, where which has been occupied pretty much solely by four or five programs the last 10 years. You cannot afford to have glaring deficiencies in game 16, 17, or even, I believe it's possible, 18 in your season. You have to have depth, quality depth, and you can't afford to have a a gaping hole in terms of uh, an age gap in a given position room. So the transfer portal is going to be so that you don't have, case in point, even a team who won a championship a couple of years ago in LSU. They lost an unbelievable volume of players who were aging out and completing their eligibility and who went to the NFL draft. That was a, a absolutely incredible haul of talent that they lost in one year. And then in 2020, then, then COVID hits and it really throws things off the rails. But you will never have again, ever, unless it's because of gross mismanagement, you will never have an instance where a team was that talented and no matter how many guys declare for the draft, no matter if there's a coaching change or not, they'll be able to replace at least in number what they lost. LSU wasn't even able to replace in number. That's how much the rules have changed between the one-time transfer, the signing uh, uh, class number limit used to be 25, the initial counter, that's gone. And then it was expanded in the COVID year to not count the super seniors. So it was up to 32 for Oregon's cases that year. That, that doesn't even exist anymore. You will never have that again. Teams will be able to replace and replenish, even if it's not at the same level of talent, they'll be able to replace the volume of players. So in case in point, to say all that for Oregon's purposes and what they add in the portal, combined with what they've lost, you know, Dan pointed out today, Marshall Malco was on in their in-house radio deal today talking about how, yes, every program loses players, but they haven't lost a starter to the portal. And they've barely lost a player on the two deep to the portal. 
So that's been about not just talent acquisition, but talent retention. And Oregon has done an incredible job of that under Dan Lanning and this staff the last couple of years, uh, to their credit. And what they've added in the portal between, you go back a couple of years ago, obviously with Bo Nix, obviously, and Bucky Irving, and add to it now Dylan Gabriel and Dante Moore. And yes, we mentioned Evan Stewart before, and so the linemen, Jabbar Muhammad at corner. But you revamp the entire secondary just via the portal. Realistically, all four additions they made via the transfer portal from the from, in the defensive backfield this year, all four of those guys are probably going to start. Um, they, that's my point is that no matter what they lost, they lost Kyrie Jackson. His, his career was coming to an end. You, you lose quarter one. You know that. And you were losing two senior starters at safety, one of whom made it to the senior bowl and, and is almost definitely going to be drafted, a combine invite, Nevin Williams, who you also added via the portal the year before. How are you going to replace these guys? Well, you go out and add four talented, experienced, proven defensive backs who are probably going to be your top-line starters in the secondary. And guess what happens a year from now? The guys who they signed over the last couple of years, either they'll be ready and they'll slide up the depth chart and move from the fringe of the two deep or in a rotational capacity into greater roles, or they're going to go out and add via the portal again <laughs> and restock that way. That's that. That's my point is they will, you will never see programs who are trying to win championships, truly trying to win championships, not just saying it just, well, we'll see what we can do, but we're, we're just not going to, we're not going to pay attention to the portal this year. If you do that, look at what happened to Clemson. That's been Clemson's position for the last couple of years. They're not going to add very much via the portal. Well, and Clemson hasn't been the team that was in the playoff and winning national championships, as we saw earlier in the decade. That hasn't been the Clemson of the last three, four, five years because they, you know, Dabo took a different kind of position. You will never see yeah. that. Yeah, you you won't. And I, I think that, you know, to Dan Lanning's credit and to the credit of the program, they have sort of jumped on this new era in, in a way that's setting a very strong precedent and building like a foundation that that people on the outside just looking at it from an objective standpoint not even you know buying into the the hype and everything that surrounds Dan Lanning and the program these days just looking at it objectively with with the the way that other programs have found success and are finding success in this era of college football i mean this foundation that that Lanning and, and his staff are building is is what you need right you need the high profile transfers you need the top level high school recruiting classes i mean they they you know, by 247's metrics, they have the number one recruiting class uh, for the class of 2024 in the Big Ten. That includes Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, or the three teams right below them. I mean, that that's no small thing, regardless of which metrics you believe in or which website you consistently read on the recruiting front. Um, it's 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 remarkable. And I think it's it's the the commitment from Dan Lanning obviously was a big storyline in the last few weeks. Um, you know, him saying he's he's not going to Alabama, whether he actually had an offer or not, that's a different discussion. But, you know, in general, the 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 loyalty piece is big and keeping somebody like that who can be the the top of the line level program leader in Lanning is big. But but what he does with that position and how he has sort of embraced this new era, um, I, I think that there there is a lot of hype around Oregon, but I think people may not be 
paying full attention or even potentially giving full credit to, to the program for the, the sort of work that it's done over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And I think, oh, look, there's, there's two parts of that. Is there hype? Yes. But is it warranted? And there are times where there's an, uh, there's a hype machine that gets just completely off the rails out of control. Yeah. Nature of the sport for that's, sure. That's yeah. That's part of it. Guess what? For as much as it goes on, everybody wants to talk about it. This is college free agency. You know what? I don't hear a word in NFL free agency about how great a visit somebody had or what their photo shoot was when they went to an NFL facility. You know what it was? They got paid a lot of money. Next. Like, there isn't rampant speculation about or what, what the impact will be um, about a coaching move or whatever, or for that matter, it's not like uh, every every player on a roster becomes a free agent if their head coach gets fired in the NFL. <laughs> but be, be that as it may, my point is, is there's a lot of hype and a lot of stuff that's only part of college football. And some of that's good and some of that's bad. And we've seen some of it get off the rails one way or the other. So it probably get off the rails way too positive when Colorado started off 3-0. and That came crashing down. Was it somewhat deserved? Even to get to the point where they won the games that they did at the beginning, quite frankly, some of it was probably a little bit deserved. Some of it was also completely nuts, but be that as it may. Uh, We've also seen it go the other way, where sometimes a cloud of negativity and speculation the other way can get away from a a core of reality and a core of realistic expectation and a core of fairness. And you can point that out to any number of places. I would say even last year a little bit with West Virginia, Neil Brown, not that he had a great record before that, the idea that he was on the hot seat entering the season was very real. But I think also that if somebody was being truly objective from a big picture standpoint, you look at that and go, what was this guy, quote unquote, supposed to achieve um, realistically earlier on? How many and, and what, is, what is the gap between what that was and where he is? And, and are we being truly fair here? So having said all that, where is the hype and what is it about Oregon right now? Is there a lot there? Absolutely. But is it backed up by the talent that's already here, that's been acquired, that's been added uh, via the portal? Yeah. I mean, just call it what it is. Like, who in the Big Ten, including with, with Michigan coming off a championship but losing a significant portion of its staff and its most talented players, objectively, who who is in a, a wildly better position than Oregon right now in terms of talent? And in terms of uh, recruiting and in terms of coaching staff and in terms of quarterback, you know, at this point in the offseason heading into the 2024 season, you know, we know Ohio State, Michigan, obviously Washington was just playing a national championship, but Washington's roster just got decimated. Uh, Michigan lost a lot, a ton, both in coaching and in players. Ohio State. They'd like to think they've made an upgrade at quarterback, and and we'll see. And they're certainly still a really, really talented roster. But top to bottom, between coaching, coordinators, quarterback, and overall talent, both in the recruiting realm and in the transfer side of things, I say Oregon is – it's not just hype to say that they are objectively one of the most talented teams entering the Big Ten 2024 season that's not a crazy statement in the least it just isn't Uh, are they objectively a really talented roster yes absolutely i mean they have (laughs) i mean they've got players like i say via the portal alone 
look at what they've added with Dylan Gabriel. And if you want to say RK, it was a portal edition from a year ago, but Tez Johnson uh, and Gary Bryan and Trayshawn Holden, for that matter, receiver and Evan Stewart, their top four receivers are all transfers. But yes, 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 they were. Um, and Jordan Birch, who's returning, but was a transfer the year before. And as for as much as they lost along the interior defensive line, what they recruited and signed a year ago and what they've signed now this year, there's a lot of youth in the interior defensive line room in particular that, again, compared to a whole lot of teams in the Big Ten, uh, compares unbelievably favorably uh, to a lot of teams there. Again, they were obviously very good on the O-line. Yes, they lost some talented players also, but they added some. And we talked about the secondary a little bit already. So, no, is there hype? Absolutely. But is it backed up by a lot of substance uh, and a lot of achievement that's already been been done? Um, but, but again, proven commodities in the transfer portal in particular. Yeah, I say I think it's warranted. I think it's backed up by substance. This has not been a place that, albeit in two years, that outside of the losses to Washington, and, I'm, and that's not to put them aside and, and dismiss them as nothing. They're significant. They mean something. Let's not kid ourselves. But that's the glaring issue. That's the glaring, like, oh, well, you know, they didn't back it up with. Right, but otherwise, outside of that, what during the two seasons of Dan Lanning's tenure has been truly amiss and a big, a big swing and miss? What, if you want to talk about the opener against Georgia? Come on. Stop. Stop. I mean, that, that, what, where the roster was then compared to now. I mean, go back and look. Go back and take a look at the depth chart. Go back and take a look at the scholarship chart from two years ago and what he inherited, what he and his staff inherited. And that's, by the way, that is not a slight and a knock on Mario Cristobal and his staff because what they achieved in 2021, if you go back and take a look at that scholarship chart and depth chart, Everybody wants to talk about how disappointing the finish was and losing to Utah twice and losing the Pac-12 title game to him and then he leaves the way that... Go back and take a look at that depth chart and tell me how in the world that team won 10 games. Truly. Go, yeah. go, and, go and, back and take a look and, at it. And these Oregon teams too, if, if you think about you know where where have been the the slip-ups in the, in the Dan Lanning era, right? Those, Oregon, those those Oregon teams like with those slip ups still occurring and nothing changing under the new format would still very much be, be in, in the, the mix. Yeah, they'd be in the playoff and they'd be able to potentially make a deep run given the talent and experience on both of those rosters. So th- this the way that they are building things, yes, is is sort of that type of foundation necessary because you don't have to walk that type tightrope anymore. Yeah. I mean, look, the the. If you want to be disappointed, and especially because it's a rivalry and what was at stake and the significance, hey, losing to Washington three times over the last two years is no doubt absolutely the biggest issue by far. By far. No question. Other than that, losing to Oregon State to finish the 22 season and blowing the lead that was. Absolutely. For Oregon's perspective, borders on disastrous depending on exactly how you want to look at it in every which way. Absolutely. No doubt about it. But again, look at the roster on that day and what the roster looks like today and objectively tell me it's not in a better space. I mean, you're just not being fair. You know, they, have, they have done a lot with what they had, both with what they inherited and added to. 
there was going to be roster churn entering the 2022 season, regardless of whether Cristobal and his staff stayed or a, a new staff came in. There was. Just being objective about it. Because Cristobal and his staff, when they came in, inherited a roster that <laughs> was still dealing with scholarship productions. You know, they didn't they didn't have a full 85 at the time. Again, people forget this. You know, short-term memory of college football. You, you don't remember two years ago, let alone five and six years ago. Well, these aren't even issues that are in the same lexicon these days. Like I say, you wouldn't you would never even th- it would be impossible to think in those terms. And if you did, well, then you'd have to do it from you'd sign a bunch of high school players to try to replace that. No, no, no. Now you got the portal, you're replacing it with junior and seniors. Things that would never have been a, the case, would never been the problem. You never would have had a receiving core for Justin Herbert that was what it was in the 2018 to 2019 seasons. Well, that was only five years ago. Yeah, but the world in college football has changed radically in the last five years. And it's going to change more in the next five. <laughs> so yeah. this this staff finds itself in a position, having said that, like you said, Ryan, already has adapted and adopted um, to the rules of the moment and stacked the roster accordingly to compete for and contend for Big Ten championships and and once you know obviously playoff spots and and to do damage once they get there and probably well positioned for not just twenty four or looking at twenty five but again you start to project out based on what you know today and you know there's going to be a lot of moving parts uh, every off season if you project out beyond twenty five you could probably come up with some areas where you got some questions, no doubt, because how can you possibly know multiple classes uh, in advance? But you could say that about anybody in the country. In terms of what looks like on paper today, knowing that they still have some uh, off-season attrition to get down to the 85 scholarship limit. I mean, how, how do you not look at this roster and say it's, like I say, it's one of the more talented, if not, you know, if it's not the most talented, it's probably number two to Ohio State in the Big Ten. And depending on how you value something like the quarterback position may alter your perspective on what you know who is the more talented roster uh, in that capacity. But bottom line, For I, sure. say, I, think, I think they've done, yes, this class, this group of 27 players uh, is, again, very, very talented. Uh, obviously, highly rated, all those sorts of things. And that's what gets fans super excited. But looking into the areas where they're, they added the most talent in areas where they uh, needed to fill certain and address certain areas of need. Uh, we'll certainly have a piece on that uh, on Oregon Live that people can check out. Um, that do I, I've done every year for the last several years of looking back at, you know, what did we say they needed to add uh, a year ago and what did they add? And looking ahead to next year, where do they likely have to add and how many at each position? Uh, and you know what it proves to be you know a year from now there's nowhere where they have like i say a glaring need uh or they missed on uh an area of glaring need they have filled accordingly they backfilled accordingly especially in the high school realm um in particular definitely and and shifting gears i guess to to the here and now and to the to the sports that are that are rolling currently um you know men's and women's basketball obviously in the heart of their pac-12 schedules right now uh men's team coming off a split in la an unfortunate split given that you know that ucla game was one that they they 
put themselves on an even thinner tightrope if we're still talking about tightropes uh, in terms of their NCAA tournament chances. Um, just just general reaction to to those games and then sort of looking ahead to, to Washington Thursday and then Washington State on Saturday. Yeah, it's unfortunately been a position that uh, the men's basketball team has found itself in each of the past couple of years. Uh, and it seems like, uh, you know, unfortunately for the past two years and now here we are a third year in a row where we're talking in February about a team who's on the outside looking in at the bubble uh, and fans who absolutely unequivocally want to believe that uh, the Ducks are in a better position than they are as far as the bubble is concerned uh, and that there's absolutely unequivocally a path for them still to work their way, not just onto the bubble, but absolutely into the tournament uh, between now and then. And to be quite honest, uh, I think this year, while this year compared to the past two seasons is absolutely the more talented and better roster than each of the past two seasons, that the performance on the defensive end specifically is so not in alignment uh, with what a Dana Allman team is and has proven to be over the years. Uh, in some cases, as I wrote earlier this week, some of the numbers between efficiency and field goal percentage allowed, three-point goal, uh, three field goal percentage allowed, rebounding margin, the combination of those things, it's its almost hard to fathom, but this might actually be the worst defensive team of Altman's tenure. I mean, that's stunning. Absolutely stunning to, to even suggest. But the numbers are what they are. And they're just not good. And he's been harping on it for weeks since before before the new year, before we even got into Pac-12 play. Uh, this was an area of concern for him. And that was when they were you know, better than they are today, uh, statistically. There are major weaknesses there. And you mentioned that tightrope position they find themselves in, Ryan. Again, I realize you can look at bracketology and tell me what Joe Lenardi's got them in the next four out. So they're, you know, they're eight teams off the bubble and, you know, they still have an opportunity against a Washington State like this weekend or Colorado and they can manage to play their way in just by beating those guys. And that, obviously that trip to Tucson. Here's the thing that Lenardi doesn't tell you in those. And I'm not knocking him. He does great work. But he is, he is doing a day-to-day, minute-by-minute assessment of the numbers that you and I and anybody else can look at and fans can look at. He's not projecting and prognosticating what's going to happen in into the future. He's saying if it ended today. What fans don't necessarily see, and while we talk about this being such a tightrope to where it, it, it may not even be a tightrope, they, no matter what they do, they might just be in a very disadvantageous position, is they still have to play Oregon State twice. They still have to go to Cal. Uh, if they win those three games, which let's not call I mean, let, let, no sugarcoating here. Those are absolutely all three must wins. There's not even a, there's zero <laughs> ambiguity there. Um, if they go 3-0 and in those three games, they could actually lose ground in the analytics that Lenardi and anybody else uses to, to project what the postseason looks like. That's why I say there's nine games left to play. One third of them hurt this team's metrics to play those games, even in winning, because it crushes their strength of schedule. And if it's a loss, totally forget it. So that's where they find themselves in a brutal position in that way, because this league stinks. It's been downright bad, top to bottom. I mean, it, this is not a good league. 
It, it, it hasn't been in a while, but this yeah. is a really, really bad men's basketball league and conference this season. Yeah, and if football finished with with a, an aplomb in uh, in terms of the Pac-12s uh, and basketball is, is finishing with a bit of a, a wet thud this, at the end is, here. Yeah, look, I, we'll see what happens. They've got uh, – are there opportunities this weekend with Washington and Washington State? Absolutely. Uh, those are two uh, quadrant two games for Oregon's purposes at the moment. Uh, and I say at the moment because Washington's on the fringe. And they're a perfect example of where I talk about math and analytics and trying to project forward a bit where if Oregon, even if they say, even if you say, obviously, all optimal, they win out, they go 9-0. and All right. Well, you then want a team like Washington to stay as high on paper as possible for your purposes if, if you're a Ducks fan and, and obviously if you're connected to the program. Well, Washington is just barely hanging on where they are on paper. A loss will ding them slightly. The optimal circumstance for Oregon's purposes is Washington goes, I believe, of their other eight remaining games. I, I believe it was they needed to go six and two, basically, to put themselves in the most advantageous position because they needed to take a loss to a team like, I can't remember if it was Arizona or, or Colorado, whatever it was. Um, so bottom line, like, they, they're not going to just need to win their own games. They're going to need some help in some places for teams like Washington, teams like Cal, who's another one on the cusp, teams like UCLA, who's on the cusp. Uh, and some of these teams have to play each other, so there's no good outcome for Oregon's purposes. Um, but like I say, that's just to get through this week with the Huskies and the Cougars. Even if Oregon wins those two games, one, I don't think they're going to gain that much ground in the net and that much in the metrics. And as I say, they followed up with a trip to Corvallis where forget about must win I'm talking about more than just in the math they're going to get crushed in the math playing a team who's 168 in the net as of today those are the things that, like I say even in winning they may not be able to make up the ground necessary to play their way comfortably into the field by the time we get to the Pac-12 tournament and then if you're in the Pac-12 tournament, you're talking about, well, they got to win two games, three games. Well, at that point, just talk about winning the whole darn thing and getting the auto bid. What's what's the difference? <laughs> Everybody could say that. That's that's a given. We know that. Yeah. Um, but one team that we know there's really no arguing about, Ryan, uh, other than winning the Pac-12 tournament, is the Oregon women's team, who is having a uh, historically woeful year for uh, the Kelly Graves era. One that uh, unfortunately was uh, quite foreseeable uh, in terms of that this was going to be uh, a really a, a struggle of a season for Oregon, uh, and and a yes, it's a young roster, but it, that didn't happen by happenstance. Uh, this was a team that had more talent a year ago, and its most talented players left uh, by choice. So it finds themselves under 500 for the first time this deep into a season since Graves' first season. 86 in net uh, to suggest anything about the NCAA tournament would be absolutely laughable. Uh, that's that's not that's not the point at all. Um, but it, it doesn't get any easier. The schedule's still brutal down the stretch here. Um, what as you've uh, uh, joined the beat and have started to cover the women's program here uh, for us last few weeks, Ryan? What and if you, has been your I want to say total assessment because you're just getting rolling, but. Uh, your perspective and what you're seeing, uh, including from this last weekend and the game with Oregon State, which was a really competitive, even if not always necessarily pretty basketball game, a very competitive basketball game with a good number of people in the stands. Uh, what has been your perspective of seeing 
a program that was obviously once nationally relevant and really proud with a lot of talent uh, reaching a point now where some real questions got to get asked. Yeah. And, and our columnist, Bill Orem has, has asked those questions. So shout out to Bill for, for coming down with us uh, for that game on Sunday. Uh, And, and, building on the discussion that's continuing to happen about the future of the program. Yeah. Look, Kelly Graves, obviously 10 years in uh, as the coach has had all the success. Everybody has, has sort of talked about the 2020 year uh, with, with the opportunity to potentially win a national championship taken away by COVID uh, with Sabrina Ionescu and company. Everybody knows about that, but this season in particular feels like it may be a breaking point for the program only because it's two consecutive years of, of regression. Uh, and, you know, with regard to football, we've talked about building on the new era of the sport and, and to a lesser degree, it's a new era in, in basketball as well. The transfer portal obviously still exists in other sports and, you know, you have to adjust for that. And the ducks are, are subtracting more than they're gaining in terms of talent on that front. And, and this year is, is sort of the, the fruit to bear for that. And the last five games, obviously the, the ducks have lost five in a row. Um, what has been really glaring beyond you know, some of the the issues defensively against uh, against a team like Stanford, which is a powerhouse, you know, 88 points is a lot to give up. Uh, but but I don't think the issues come down as much to those defensive challenges as they do just the inability to to score the ball and to, to shoot the ball. Frankly, we, we, we talked about this on Sunday, James, when we were at the Oregon women's game, that game against uh, against Oregon State for a while there before that sort of fourth quarter surge for both of the teams. Neither could could hit the broadside of a barn, but it was a continuation of a trend for the Ducks who they simply don't don't have enough shooting, I think, to, to compete in, in the Pac-12. And it's it's proven by the fact that they're near the bottom of the standings it's it's been a rough year um and that's not to say that there aren't strong contributors that have have done well on this team so far i, I think about you know filipina shea and, and her ability to to go up against uh, a player in reagan beers in that oregon state game is a good example like individual players are having you know solid games or solid stretches but it's not coming together and frankly the depth isn't there and, and the shooting isn't there and so that it's it's plain to see it's it's not a matter of circumstance or bad luck that oregon is near the bottom of the pac-12 standings they they are decidedly one of one of the worst teams and so you know it it's it begs those type of questions like what does the future of the program look like yeah and and look again this is all foreseeable because we knew what they uh lost and what they added by way of talent in the offseason you know you don't lose tahina pow pow and 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 the rogers and replace them with the players they got via the portal and say you upgraded i mean they just didn't now peyton scott goes down five minutes into the season and she was supposed to be a bigger contributor sure but objectively what, what game did this team lose other than Utah Tech shooting the lights out? What game did this team lose in league play that they were going to win had Peyton Scott been on the floor? I mean, you just have to, I mean, truly, you just have to objectively ask yourself that. If you want to tell me, oh, well, they absolutely would have beaten Oregon State with her. All right, if you know that, well, then not for nothing. How, you know, they won a game against Arizona where they darn near gave it away at the end. And, who knows what happens by way of personnel rotations or any other thing when when another player is on the court, even if you think they're the better player. So you can't go down that road. 
bottom line is, is there's any team supposed to be able to overcome an injury. And yes, they've had a couple other minor injuries along the way too. And we'll see what happens with Sophia Bell and Kennedy Williams got a little dinged up, but ultimately, yeah, is the Pac-12 a tough league to play in? Yeah. You know what? Some of the teams who make it a tough, a tough league to play in this season, particularly, were might as well have been a full mountain range behind where Oregon was only two or three years ago. And now to suggest that Oregon could catch them in a single offseason is is absurd. And I'm talking about specifically about teams like Utah or Colorado or USC. These were teams who were way, way behind in certain cases than where the Ducks were. And not, I'm not even just talking about Sabrina's years. I'm talking about even the year or two after. And now, like I say, they, <laughs> I mean, these teams aren't even in the same universe. Um, they're just not. Uh, and that's not even looking like a, a pass a team like Washington State, who has been past them and is in the top 25 in terms of net rankings, but unfortunately lost their best player for the remainder of the season. Uh, Oregon's got a real problem in terms of talent and in terms of ability, as you touched on, Ryan, in terms of shooting. Um, we knew, But we knew that entering the year, again, even before injuries happen, Graves talked about how this is going to be a grinding kind of year. They're going to have to play slower because of their uh, inabilities and, and deficiencies on offense. They'd have to be geared defensively. And he'll talk about certain things that are positive on defense, but analytically, and we talked about this on Sunday amongst ourselves, analytically speaking, when you take into account the pace that they're playing at, some of their defensive analytics are the worst of Graves' tenure, if not the worst in the last 15 years. And I say 15 because that's as far back as some of the advanced stats go. In any number of defensive statistics, particularly in conference play, Effective field goal percentage against a uh, portion of uh, opponents' possessions that end up in assists and assisted baskets. Um, for a team that's supposed to be geared towards playing defense and winning it that way, there are some defensive statistics that are absolutely mind-blowing. So you go, so not only are they lacking on the offensive end because of talent and ability, the area that they're built to, for this season, try to play more towards uh, isn't particularly good either. Uh, and not just isn't particularly good, in some cases downright awful. Um, so you've got to start, that's where you have to really ask the questions of like, where is this program going? And what can they hang their hat on right now, heading into even next year? And as we all know, as soon as the season ends, every player has decisions to make for themselves. And we're not going to openly speculate about what anybody will or won't do, because if we knew, we would report it. We, we, we don't delve into speculation. But point is, is, even if you feel one or two or three players are really talented and that's something to work around, well, that's through the lens that everybody's going to stay. And we're not saying they aren't, but who knows? So you got to start to ask the questions about, all right, what does it start to look like? And that's where, as I'm sure uh, we will definitely do, and Ryan will definitely do in particular over the next uh, five or six weeks as this uh, regular season comes to a close uh, for the Oregon women's basketball program where it finds itself in uh, an unusual position for the Kelly Graves era. Uh, quite honestly, uh, like I say, under 500 this deep in hasn't happened since the end of Graves' first season. No, and it and it's not likely to improve in no. any respect, as no. as you pointed out earlier. Like the the next four games for Oregon at number four Colorado, at number 20 Utah, two teams that they just lost to uh, and weren't particularly competitive with for stretches of those games. Um, and then you're back home against USC and UCLA, two teams who, even on the road, are extremely formidable, talented, number 10 and number 9 team in the country. 
that that could be four losses and then you're staring down a, a nine game losing streak with four games to go. I mean, that's that's as deep a hole as as Kelly Graves team has faced in in his tenure. So, yeah, there is there is a lot of, of questions to be asked and and sort of soul searching for the program to do in, in the coming weeks, because, you know, this obviously isn't the the standard that the the athletic program had hoped for. It's not the standard that obviously Kelly Graves had, had hoped for uh, when when they sort of caught lightning in a bottle and built that program out the way they did uh, during the UNESCO years. And then, as you said, for a couple of years after, um, yeah, it's 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 going to be an interesting few weeks for yeah, sure. And you kind of call it what it is. Look, there's a difference between saying, oh, you're a victim of your own success when you have a down year. Um, you know, people are coming out of the woodwork just to pile on. No, no, no. This isn't about one year. We know that. We know this isn't about one year. This isn't one off. You know, and it's not a matter of all oh, replacing a Sabrina and Sabrina and Ruthie and Satu, uh, who are all you know top eight picks in the draft, and and Satu's obviously having a tremendous professional career uh, as well as Sabrina. Uh, that doing that in one fell swoop was going to be impossible for anybody. You're absolutely. We're four years removed from that. Four years removed from that. We are a full collegiate career removed from that. In college sports, that is a lifetime. Ever since. The trajectory and the performance has trended down each of the last four years. When Niara left and she was wrapped up. And as I say, Andy comes in, does well, but she leaves early. Now you're at a point where, again, everything is unfortunately trending the way it does. And this is a performance business. You know, this is about, you know, what have you done for me lately? So... We will see over the next few weeks, but uh, it is a program that, again, we're not uh, piling on because of one year of performance. Uh, we're objectively saying this is trending in the wrong direction. It has been for a couple of years. And, you know, again, not victim of your own success, victim of expectation of, hey, Kelly Graves makes a lot of money. And any coach in that position who finds himself in a losing record this deep into a season uh, with some of the issues and statistical performances and the like, no matter how tough the league is, no matter what injuries may happen, uh, these questions will be posed of anybody. Uh, and I know, again, that we will certainly be uh, examining and looking into that uh, if that continues. And look, and we'll be also the first to write about uh, if, if they pull off any upsets and, and turn some things around and do better down the stretch. Uh, but it's not looking great. So, uh, again, yeah, we will. Uh, yeah, this we'll was a classic that. problem that uh, that Chris Reifer and I would run in, into with uh, Soccer Made in Portland. Right. You'd get people talking like, oh, why? Why are you speaking so negative so constantly about this team, whether it was the Timbers who were struggling, which it more often was, or it was the Thorns who were struggling, uh, which was rare, but did happen. Um, it's like the perspective is, oh, you're piling on. But no, it's just ne negative things are happening. So we will continue to talk about them, whether when, they are positive or negative. Yes. yes. And, when, and, and again, when they're positive, we'll go the other way. Look, we're going to get into spring sports. You know, softball starts tomorrow. Yes. Yep. Tomorrow, believe it or not, or for, the, for Thursday, for the, you know, depending on what day you're listening to this podcast, I suppose. But tomorrow, as we're recording this, uh, and... That is a team that's uh, starting off in the top 15 and has uh, lots of optimism and a lot of uh, talent to build around there in its final year in the Pac-12. Baseball gets started soon enough. Uh, and obviously, spring football is not too far off. So lots that we'll be getting into, uh, Ryan and myself. And uh, uh, for just a minute here, Ryan, before we wrap up, as you've touched on it, obviously, you've done uh, soccer coverage for us here at the Oregonian for the last, uh, last couple of years. But for folks who haven't necessarily delved into that or maybe they only saw it in passing and 
you know, not didn't necessarily pay attention to bylines and every which other thing. Uh, tell folks uh, for the Ducks fans and listeners uh, who are going to be uh, uh, hearing you more often and reading you more often here going forward, uh, a little bit about uh, you, how you come to uh, uh, what you've been doing for us and uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. For sure. No, I, I uh, obviously this is, is my third year now at the Oregonian started out on the high school beat and a few months in they, they wanted to expand soccer coverage. So I, I jumped on that to to cover the Timbers and Thorns for the last two years. Obviously, even as casual observers might be aware, it's been sort of a tumultuous couple of years for those two teams and and for the ownership and front office and everything else so a lot to cover there in addition obviously to an nwsl championship for the thorns and a lot of turnover and interesting storylines and coach firings and hirings and everything else for the timbers um and i had a lot of fun on that beat it it was a, a great opportunity for me to cut my teeth covering professional sports as a young reporter i'm only 28 years old and you know grew up here in Oregon from Beaverton, went to Westview High School, brother went to Oregon, a ton of close friends, including the best man in my wedding, Mitch Tamblin, shout out to Mitch, went to Oregon uh, along with other other close friends. And so, you know, there's a lot of um, connection for me to to. Oregon sports, Oregon football, growing up uh, watching the Ducks and as a kid, you know, rooting for the Ducks and eventually having friends and family that that went to the school and visiting Eugene as often as I could to hang out with them. You know, it's it's something that I've always had a, a strong and special connection to. And, and it's an exciting thing for me to be able to to be around now to to shoot down to Eugene, make the classic I-5 uh, trek. In fact, going to make that uh, later this afternoon to to work on a story down there in Eugene today this that being Wednesday um but yeah I'm an Oregon kid I I grew up in this state I have learned to really appreciate the the sports culture and and grow up in it um and and just sort of excited to contribute to a space where there's a lot of discussion and a lot of coverage but you know being able to to join James on this beat and, and tell a lot of these important stories uh, and, and go deeper than others can because we're here and we have the ability to to work together and collaborate and do that uh, is, is something special and is something that I think that uh, Oregon fans absolutely deserve, uh, given the interest, given the passion. So excited to, to keep this rolling. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it in the, uh, as I say, the days and weeks uh, and certainly many months uh, ahead between uh, all, again, all sports, specifically as we're wrapping up the uh, regular seasons in uh, men's and women's basketball, but again into spring football and uh, baseball and softball seasons getting rolling. And before we know it, uh, I realize that we're, as we put a bow on this uh, edition of the podcast, uh, talking about signing day and, and the uh talent that was on a on a day where Oregon added uh, Gatlin Bear for those who missed it uh, somehow some way <laughs> that that may have escaped you um, that uh, hey before you know it not just spring football but we're going to be looking ahead to the inaugural season of Big Ten play uh, for Oregon and obviously a really exciting time that that will be uh, not only with the the talent that we've already addressed and talked about here on the podcast but uh, on a schedule that is just going to be very different uh, compared to years past in a good way, uh, you know, to be clear, yeah. but just going to be very different, you know, trips to, uh, to Madison, Wisconsin in November, uh, and, uh, and to Ann Arbor in November are just a wee bit different, uh, than talking about, Oh, that dreaded 
you know, trek to the desert uh, in November uh, and, and history. Like those things are, they, they're going to be history. There's going to be yeah. a whole lot of new things for yeah, us to and, talk about. And sp- speaking as a guy that graduated from Arizona State, yeah, Tempe in November is is just a bit different than Ann Arbor. So yeah, going to be going to be a different uh, different deal entirely. Definitely going to need to pack some some warm clothes for that one. For yes, sure. there'll be uh, there'll be some fun ones. Uh, like I said before before we know it, but lots yeah. to get into before then. And uh, we certainly appreciate everybody for listening on uh, on this edition of the uh, Dex Confidential podcast. And for those who don't already do so, please uh, like, subscribe, five star review, uh, wherever it is that you listen to and uh, find your podcast and the like. Uh, and uh, you can uh, now tweet uh, all of your uh, issues and uh, take umbrage with every which thing to Ryan as well as myself um, <laughs> so that uh, we can fully welcome him to the beat <laughs> accordingly. Yeah, spread the love, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and we will be uh, checking in uh, on a pretty much weekly basis uh, going forward uh, and have additions again as we wrap up the basketball seasons and we'll preview spring football, which isn't going to be too far away and the like. So lots to just talk about, lots to discuss, and we look forward to doing so. But for this edition of the program, we, we Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.